Romans chapter 2. And here in our text this morning, Paul is going to move from his critique on the self-righteous moralist that occurred from verses 1 through 16. And now he's going to focus on people like himself, uh, the ethnically and religiously Jewish people. Paul continues to to make his point that he began in chapter 1, verse number 18, where he says that God's wrath and condemnation is being revealed. So in Romans chapter 2, verse number 17, he's going to underscore the reality that one's ethnicity, uh, one's obedience to God's law, or one's religious self-confidence are in and of themselves no protection against the judgment of God. Let me show you that in this first verse, verse number 17. There he says, but if you bear the name Jew, and so there's one's ethnicity, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, that's obedience to God's law, and then he goes on to say, and boast in God, And there's the religious self-confidence. And so as we begin, I want you to understand that in in my translation, uh, the word Jew is is, is quoted, right? You see that in yours? It says, if you bear the name Jew. Now, uh, today, when when someone says that word, it has the potential to be offensive uh, towards others. When they hear the, the name Jew. I mean, just, just think about the shameful suffering that occurred at the hands of the Holocaust. And, and then think about the sad reality uh, that anti-Semitism still exists today. For some people, just hearing the name Jew is offensive to them. But you need to understand that when Paul uses this term, He's not trying to be offensive at all. In fact, in terms of Old Testament history, and from the perspective from which Paul is writing, uh, to be called a Jew would have been something very honorable. So the chosen people of God took great pride in being named Jew. Now originally, uh, they were referred to as Hebrews. Uh, Because that was the language that they spoke. Then they began uh, to be referred to as Israelites. And that was the name after the land that God had promised and the covenant to give to them. And so by the time of Paul's writing, uh, the most common name that they had was that of Jew. This uh, word is derived from the word Judah. Judah was one of the twelve tribes. And after the separation of the kingdoms that occurred following the death of King Solomon, Judah became the name of the southern kingdom. And so during and after Babylonian captivity, the term Jew was used to refer to the whole race of people that descended from Abraham through Isaac. And so... This name represents the distinctiveness of this people group from all other people groups in this world. So here, Paul was addressing individuals who were truly called Jews and who in fact took great 
pride in bearing that name. This pride is seen following a list of moral and religious details that Paul gives to us. And so it follows the if clause that's found in verse number 17. Look, at, look again at verse 17. It says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and then verse 18 says, and you know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed by the law or out of the law. Now the verbs that are being used here are all in the present tense. They're present tense verbs, which emphasizes the habitual action of the people. And so what do we know? It says that uh, the Jews rely upon the law. In other words, they put their confidence in the fact that God gave them the law. And the law represents not just the Pentateuch, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, but includes all of the writings, all of the prophets. And so the Jews possessed God's Word, and they believed based upon their possessing God's Word that they also possessed God's approval and God's acceptance. But there's a critical mistake that's often made in that assumption. The reality is that God does not accept a person because that person happens to have God's Word in their possession. No, God approves and accepts an individual who does the Word of God, who lives their lives in full submission unto what the Word of God demands from us. And so here, we see they took great pride in the fact that they uh, they rely upon the law. And then the text tells us next, they, they boast in God. Which means that they, they have a tendency to brag about their relationship to God. Uh, they, they take glory in their covenantial ties with God. They, they profess God, and, and they believe that God will accept them based upon that profession. But that too can be a fatal mistake. Listen to uh, the words of our Lord that are declared in Matthew chapter 7. And there He says, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons? And in Your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. May you understand that God is not interested solely in our profession. God is much more interested in making sure that our profession is matched with how we live our lives in obedience to what He commands from us. Therefore, it's not enough just to profess something. We must live our lives in full submission unto the thing to which we profess. And so, as a result of these two realities among the Jews, then the three things become really clear in this next part of the text. The first thing is, is that they know uh, God's will. 
They have an awareness of God's desire and of His plan. They know what God uh, wants done from them, what He expects from them. They know the difference between right and wrong. Therefore, based upon that knowledge, they feel as though they have God's approval. However, again, knowing something is not the same thing as living your life in submission to that which you profess to know. I I think it's a bit ironic when you think about how ancient Jews viewed wisdom. Ancient Jews considered wisdom uh, to be action based upon knowledge. Which is, uh, I think, a, a very beautiful understanding of what wisdom is. In comparison, their counterparts, uh, the Greeks would have viewed wisdom as knowledge. Simple knowledge. And so by the time uh, the New Testament writings are, are occurring, then what we see is that many Jews, especially religious leaders, had in practice began to embrace the the Greek view of wisdom. That they were content in in knowing what God's Word had to say, but they had little desire or motivation in actually obeying and surrendering themselves uh, uh, to His Word. And so they know His will. And then notice the second thing. They, They approve the things that are essential. So they not only know about God's will, they not only know the difference between the things that are right and things that are wrong, but they're actually able to discern or to approve the things that are most essential. They're able to discern or approve the more excellent way or the better things to do. But again, another problem in this thinking, the reality is that God is not interested in our approval of what is essential. God is more interested in our doing those things that are essential. First John chapter 3, verse number 18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed, in truth. And so they know his will. They have, uh, they, they approve the things that are essential. Notice then, thirdly, that they were instructed out of the law. They have been firmly rooted in God's word and because of this instruction, they felt as though based upon the instruction that they received that they had a right relationship with God. I hope you get the pattern now. God's not only interested in what we know or the instruction of what we've received, but He's interested in what we do with the knowledge that we have and the instruction that we've received. God expects us to Uh, For those that have learned, God expects us to live out the things that we've learned. There's a big problem within the church today, and that is the church is often filled with great biblical knowledge, but not the right application of that knowledge. 
So we'll sit through Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, taking in, taking in, and taking in, but never allowing that knowledge to transform who we are and what we do. That is a, that is a sick condition of the church. The, the, the term I use would be that is the, the spiritual constipation of the church. Only intake, nothing going out. I don't leave. Don't have to paint a description better than that. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Have all the waters of life flowing into it, but there's not. There's no outflow from it. And so many in the church are spiritually sick. They're taking in, taking in, taking in, but there's not the right application of that knowledge being lived and displayed in and through their lives. So God expects us to take what we've learned and He expects us to put it into practice. In other words, God expects us to live out what we've been taught. The Jews not only felt secure in what they knew, but they also felt secure in what they taught. Look at the next verse, verse number 19. It says, And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the knowledge, um, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. So instead of leading Gentiles, whom they viewed as being inferior to themselves, and instead of taking this attitude of, of leading the Gentiles to, to trust in the one true God and to be, become obedient unto his will instead of doing this the jewish leaders often would overwhelm fresh converts with this vast rabbinical system of of a whole bunch of man-made rules and and regulations it became so bad and so much of a problem that the sad reality was that many of the jewish leaders were doing more damage than they were doing good to those that they were trying to lead to a profession of faith and belief so much so jesus declares in matthew chapter 23 verse number 15 he says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites because you travel about on sea and land to make one a proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice, a much, twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Strong language from the Lord. And so that's a, a, a problem that they, they had. They were so confident in their instructions, but what they were doing was just regurgitating a whole bunch of man-made regulations and, and not understanding what God truly wants for our hearts and for our lives. In theological terms, their preaching and their teaching was proper orthodoxy. The problem was their living did not reflect proper orthopraxy they had right orthodoxy they had wrong orthopraxy what does that mean they, they taught right doctrine but they lived wrong actions right teaching wrong living and so there were more than a dozen times recording in the scriptures in the gospels 
where Jesus addressed the sin of hypocrisy. And likewise, without using the actual term hypocrisy, this is exactly the attitude and the behavior that Paul is addressing in this next section. In verse number 21, he says, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul here is addressing the issue of hypocrisy. And he's doing so in the form of four rhetorical questions. Each question, interestingly, is in the singular form. Which means Paul addressed this letter to a group of believers, but he's not addressing or asking questions about group behavior. He is, in turn, right now, addressing the, the hypothetical individual. In other words, don't worry about what everybody else is doing. What is it that you're doing? And so in Greek form, the, the first question is supposed to elicit a rather specific response when he says, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Well, the implied answer to that question would be, yes, of course I teach myself. Of course we do. But the person that Paul is addressing is failing to live up to the standards and the expectations of that which they are teaching. So Paul is not simply content to point out the general principle that it's much easier to tell other people how to behave and how to live than it is to actually behave and to live right for ourselves. He's not interested in just leaving that in general terms. Here he applies this principle to some specific illustrations. And I think we easily connect with three out of four of the illustrations that he gives to us. I think we, we can understand what he's talking about when he's asking about teaching, uh, when he's as, asking about stealing, or even adultery. I think the one that might be potentially confusing for us to understand the connection would be the one on idolatry. So let's focus in on that one illustration and perhaps we can have a better understanding of the point that he's trying to make. The end of verse number 22, he asks, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now the exact meaning of the final rhetorical question is a bit obscure, I admit. So some people uh, think that he could be speaking to those who teach against idols while they themselves have a tendency to idolize the law. Perhaps that's what he's trying to address. Some believe that he could be speaking of those who refuse to, to send in their yearly temple tax to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's addressing that issue. Others think that it's likely that, that Paul could have been speaking to those who had been plundering the pagan temples. you got to understand, there were literally thousands of pagan temples in that region. And uh, some believe that Paul was addressing those that were 
plundering those pagan temples and they were going in and removing the idols from those pagan temples. And instead of, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, instead of just destroying those idols, some were taking the materials from which those idols were made and they were turning around and selling it for a profit for themselves. So whatever it is, either of those like is important to address, but the point of all of the questions is, is simply to get us to understand that what is preached must be practiced. It's not just enough to say something, we must live it out as well. Because if we refuse to practice the things that we preach, then the things that we preach are going to be used as judgment uh, against the one that's done the preaching. So, so it's very important that it's not just our faith in God and, and our belief in Jesus is not just something that we say, but it's something that we do. It's who we are. And so the point becomes really clear in verse number 23. He says, You who boast in the law, through your boasting, or through your breaking of the law, you dishonor God. You're bragging about the law. You're boasting in how you believe that the the law elevates you above other people. But you've forgotten the reality that yes, the law condemns them, but it also condemns you. If we claim to be one of God's people, then our lives must reflect what God's Word reveals. When we do not live up to our spiritual claims, then we dishonor God's name, we discourage other believers, and we give reasons for others to speak evil of God. Look at verse 24. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. The indictment of verse number 24 makes it clear that the question in verse number 23 is rhetorical. Uh, Here we have the uh, hypocritical Jews were breaking the law themselves and it was the law that they boasted in. And in doing this, they were dishonoring God. So yes, it's true. Every sin dishonors God. But I believe it's also true that the sin that is committed by those that profess to believe in Him dishonor God more. So what we have here is Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 5. He strongly rebukes the hypercritical Jewish people by declaring, in the name, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So when professed believers are openly sinful or when the private sins of professed believers become known unto others, what ends up happening often is that God, His Word, and His church are openly mocked and ridiculed 
as a result. And so the unbeliever looks at that and, and then begins to struggle with why is it that I need to change my life when I see in you the same tendency as I have for myself? What's the difference? What's the point? We're both doing the same sin, and yet you want me to submit and to surrender to something that appears to have little effect or change on you. In verse number 25, he says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if, if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. I always love uh, addressing circumcision within church when you have family worship together. Because come, be very careful on how we uh, go about this. And so, mom and dad, you're welcome for the conversations that you get to have later as a result of of this but understand it's important for us to see and to understand what 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 paul is trying to say here circumcision was fundamental to the jewish people it symbolized the covenant that god had made between himself and abraham you can go back to genesis chapter 17 and you can see the establishment so circumcision was an expression of Israel's national identity. And not only that, it was a requirement for all Jewish males. But understand the futility of substituting the symbol for the reality it represents is clear, not just today, but it was clear even in the Old Testament period. Moses understood Moses knew that obedience was much more than just submitting ourselves to some ceremonial law. Moses declared in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse number 16, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah, he echoed the same concern. Jeremiah 4.4 He writes, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then we understand that a person is acceptable unto God because they live for God. They seek seek to live their lives in submission and obedience to His Word and to His will. They're acceptable unto God because of that. That, not because of some ceremony in which they participate in. When I think about how does that correlate to today? I think today we run great danger in trying to convince people that the only way for them to become approved or acceptable to God is if you'll say a certain prayer. Or if you'll... If I could just get them baptized, Pastor, then I'll know that they'll be okay. So what we've done today is we, we've substituted sinner's prayer and baptism for circumcision. Thinking that if we can just get them to do that, then everything's going to be alright. So, you'll know where, where I fall on these issues. Sinner's prayer 
is not found in the Word of God. The sinner's prayer could be a true reflection of a person's submission and surrendering unto God. That could be so. So there could be value in that. But just because they get somebody to repeat a prayer for the first time in their life doesn't mean that they're approved by God. It simply means that they can follow instructions. The danger of just trying to get somebody baptized so that they'll be okay doesn't secure salvation. Baptism is supposed to be the expression of the spiritual transformation that has occurred within a person. May you know that hell is going to be filled with many a people who simply just got wet in the baptistry. So we've exchanged symbolism. And for us, it's not so much the issue of circumcision and uncircumcision. It's whether or not they said for the very first time or we can get them baptized. I I grew up in a church that every single Sunday was the type of Sunday where it was repeat this prayer. And if you prayed this prayer for the very first time and you prayed it genuinely, then you'll be okay. It's a message that I remember hearing. And I can remember the, 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 the issues that I would struggle with. I could be at home and sitting in a chair and begin to think. I don't know why I'd have the thought, but then I'd think, ah, yeah, I, I prayed that prayer. I remember praying it. I remember the evangelist says, write this date in the back of the Bible so you can always go to that date. So I remember that on this date that I prayed it. Oh, but I, did I do it sincerely? Do it, did I do it genuinely? What if I thought I did it genuinely, but I wasn't aware that I didn't do it genuinely? Oh no, what does that mean for me? So I'll pray it again. And I'll write a new date. And then I'll pray it again. And I write a new date, and all along I'm growing up with this mentality that it's about making sure you say the right words in the right way. As though that was the way to secure salvation without realizing that what God expects and what He desires from us is for us to acknowledge and to confess our sin and our need for Him and to believe that God raised Him from the dead. That we're to confess Jesus Christ as Lord confess them as Lord. We don't confess them as Savior. They're not the same thing. I'll get to more of that next week. But we're to confess them as Lord. Jesus will never be your Savior until He is first and foremost Lord, Master, Ruler over our hearts and our lives. Notice what it says in the text. Verse 25 again. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law... But notice, once you break that law, if you become the transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Your sin has become the foreskin back into your life. The Bible, I believe, is crystal clear when it comes to the reality that the only way that we can have a right standing before God is that we must believe, confess, and obey. It takes all of them. Your Bible's open to Romans 2. Turn a few pages to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. 
Beginning in verse number 9, Paul says it like this. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. He says, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scriptures say, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Real quick, turn with me in your Bibles. Go, go to John chapter 3. Hold your place in Romans. We've got to wrap up this chapter in just a moment. But, but turn with me to John chapter 3. won't spend a lot of time here. I just want you to hear what Jesus says. In John chapter 3, beginning in the, the most famous of all, verse number 16, He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. There's more that Jesus says. It's not just that one verse. It's a life-changing verse. Yes. But keep reading. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. The one who believes in Him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Their lifestyle, what they did, bore evidence to that. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light, for this, for that his deeds will not be exposed, so that his deeds will not be exposed. Verse 21, but the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. Skip down to, to verse 35. 35 says, the Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things to his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey, the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So belief and obedience go together. We're not saved because we obey. Scripture teaches we're saved by grace not by works, right? So belief and obedience go together, which means genuine salvation will result in obedience. So circumcision, back to that. Circumcision was of great value if the person understood and lived its intended significance. However, the meaning of circumcision was disregarded when they didn't live the intended significance. So, so for those that didn't adhere to the law, submit to God's Word, 
seek to live in accordance to God's will. For them, circumcision became as meaningless as a wedding ring is for the adulterer who's wearing it. It's a contradiction. It violates that truth. Paul continues. Let's get back to Romans 2. Paul continues by logically turning to the other side of the coin. He talks about circumcision. Now he makes the connection with uncircumcision. Verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? Who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? The implied answer to the question is yes. Of course. So Paul is revealing that true circumcision is spiritual. It's one that is enacted by God. So to make the point, Paul declared that anyone who keeps the law is keeping the requirements of the law. And it doesn't matter if they're circumcised or not. Circumcision alone does not justify an individual. Saying a sinner's prayer alone does not justify an individual. Being baptized alone does not justify an individual. No, their action must be consistent with the profession of their faith. It's important for us to understand that that being a Jew does not automatically mean that that individual is secured with God. Likewise, being a non-Jew, a Gentile, a Greek, whatever, does not necessarily mean that that person is condemned before God. It's a matter of the heart. And so verses 28 and 29 here, Paul reiterates that Jewish heritage, as wonderful as it is, has absolutely no spiritual benefit if it just stands on its own. It says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. All that to say that there is no law, there is no practice that is able to make us acceptable unto God. Being acceptable unto God is not an outward thing that one can do. It's not about our, our, our nationality or our spiritual heritage. No, being acceptable to God is an inward reality. True salvation is a matter of the heart. Do you understand God's great love for you? Do you understand that the only way that we can have a right relationship with God is acknowledging and submitting and surrendering our lives to the work that was accomplished on our behalf through His only begotten Son. It's surrendering 
everything that we have unto him. And so as chapter 2 comes to a close, and before we spend a little bit of time in, in prayerful reflection, allow me to share with you two final passages of Scripture. And then I'm done. For some reason, I just felt necessary for us to, 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 to look at this and, and maybe perhaps to encourage you a little bit this morning. The first one comes from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, it says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must answer. God's Word is surgical. It is meant to pierce our hearts. I shared that verse with you today just to challenge you a little bit with the thought that if God has revealed something to you, made known something in your life, a sin that needs to be confessed and repented from, a decision that needs to be declared and made, whatever it is. If God's Word has done its work in in you, then what will you do as a response to that? And then the other passage of Scripture that came before me this week is for those that are here with a troubled heart. You're here. You might be hiding behind this this disguise that all is good and all is well in your life, but really, deep down, you're wounded, broken, discouraged, perhaps even frustrated. For you, God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 6, says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time having cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist Him. Firming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. Notice in verse number 7, he says, cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Everybody should commit that promise to memory. We can bring it all to Him. And He wants us to because He cares for us. But it goes on. There's more. Look at verses 10 and 11. There he says, after you have suffered for a little while, and some of you are in the suffering stage right now. I get it. I understand. After you've suffered for a little while, it says that the God of all grace, who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, look at those words, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. You're suffering. 
you might be there now. Cast all your cares upon him. Bring it to him so that he can sustain you, so that he can build you up. Know that at some point the suffering is going to end, but in the midst of the suffering, God is able to perfect you, to confirm you, to strengthen you, to establish you. Church, may the profession that comes out of our mouth that we believe be a true reflection in how we live our lives. May we always live in order to seek and to desire to glorify God by the things that we do and the words that we speak. We'll pray for a little bit. The altar is open. Staff and I, we're all here to pray with you, to encourage you, to do whatever we can in this moment. God's Word is surgical. Has it done its work in your life? What will you do as a result of what you've heard from Him? through the Bible study hour, and through our worship time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. And God, as we enter into the holiest of holy weeks that there is in this year, Father, help us to do so rightfully, respectfully, reverently, Father. May we not minimize the sacrifice of your Son, in such a way that we just carelessly go about living our lives. But God, may we truly honor the sacrifice by being obedient to Your Word. There are some that are here in this moment, Father, that they need salvation. I pray that Your Spirit would convict their hearts and that they would call upon You and declare Christ as Lord. For those that belong to you right now, Father, there are many that are living in disobedience right now. Father, may your Spirit bring about conviction. For those that are bitter, for those that are angry, for those that are unforgiving, God, may we identify that for what it is, and that is sin that dishonors you. For those that are worried and burdened and frustrated, May they just bring it to you today. Father, be pleased during this time. Be glorified in what you see in from us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.